Welcome to another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm Mitch Michaels, and we have a great show planned for you today. Friday, day after Thanksgiving. Hope you're waking up out of your food comas and ready to listen to some sports and other things. Two great guests on the show today. Gonna talk to John Rydell, Ohio State fan and technical operations manager at the NFL Network. We're gonna talk about the Ohio State Michigan game and all of its excitement. We're two Buckeye fans, and we can't wait to bring you a preview of that game. But first, a lengthy discussion with Tim Adams. Tim is the guy that provides the beats of this podcast. He's a video producer at NFL Network. He's got a lengthy background, a good friend of mine. We'll dive into his background in New York, a lot of music, a lot of rap music in New York City, and then some New York sports as well. And his path to the NFL Network, you're not going to want to miss that. It's the Money Mitch Effect, third show of the week, day after Thanksgiving. Let's get it on. All right, so now joining the show, very special guest, Tim Adams. Tim, it's been a long time coming. Thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Mitch, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And I got to say thank you before we go any further for supplying the music so far that we've been just using on the podcast. It's made it better and appreciate that. Definitely a game changer, changer as far as I'm concerned. Oh, dude, that's equally a pleasure. Those, are, um, those little beats are just kind of relics from a, a time past when the dream was to be a music producer full time. So I'm, I'm happy to be able to use them however I can nowadays. We'll get into your music stuff a bit later, but I do want to say that I've, I've had some compliments given to me, like about the tracks. A couple of people have even asked me in particular where to find some of those songs, if they could find them on Spotify. So not just to <laughs> embellish or anything. No, no, I, I appreciate it, man. I, I'm happy to provide more when I can. So for our listeners' background, Tim and I worked at NFL Network in 2014. Tim still works there in video production. That was your first year there, now three years at the network. But yeah. your background is pretty diverse. So what, I guess, got you to this point? You mentioned music. I know you have some other interests. What got you into the world of sports? Well, I think the world of sports consumed me you know, from a very young age, first and foremost as a fan. But I, wasn't, I didn't, wasn't too old before I started playing around with the media side of it as well. So when I was a little kid and I got my hands on you know, my first camcorder, my father being a documentary filmmaker, we had cameras laying around. So from a young age, I used to go out and, and shoot stuff. And like some of the more interesting stuff to shoot in New York City was, you know, when I was a little kid, was to go out to Central Park and shoot sports. So quite literally from a very young age, I was you know, hands on with sports media for the fun of it. And multimedia in general, music specifically, but very much video and film as well have been some of my biggest passions throughout my life. Do you think, and you mentioned it too, your father was a documentary filmmaker and you grew up in New York City. And those are two big influences on your life, having a, having a father in this industry and New York City, which is the mecca of just about everything in this country. But did your parents, did your father push or kind of nudge you in the direction of, hey, this is you know available to you? No, so yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, when you're a kid, you, you know, you grew up around your parents, obviously, and you see what they do, and you, maybe some kids have it different ways. I was one of those kids who never really wanted to be what my parents were. My mom was a professor, I mean, uh, has been for 35 years, a profession I respect to the utmost. Obviously, my father, being a documentarian, he was a creative being, to say the least, and he's an awesome person. Nevertheless, I just, I, I didn't think I wanted to 
be a filmmaker. I didn't think I wanted to be a professor either. I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be a music yeah. producer. I wanted to be uh, a basketball player. I mean, uh, a million different things before either of those. But as I grew up, whether it's in my blood or not, that, that creative spirit took over me at some point. And so I got involved in, in video. I got involved in editing. I got involved in generally producing or, you know, to the extent that one can produce when they're 12 or 13. Yeah. I was always involved however I could be. And when you got to school, I guess college and then a little bit before, did you find yourself taking on more of an interest in music production, in video production, in sports as a, maybe a career? Yeah, well, so as I was coming out of high school, I took an advanced video production course, made a few short films, really got into the editing side of it. Mm -hmm. And so when I went into college, one of the more important aspects of my decision or, or you know, uh, variables that I was kind of uh, deciding upon in choosing my, my college was that uh, William & Mary, which is where I ended up going, had just built out uh, a new two, two and a half million dollars into a music recording and production studio space. You know, when I went to go visit to see what I thought of that school, that that really had a big impact on me. I knew that, you know, I'd be in there all the time if I went. I ended up doing a lot of work in film and video in college, uh, both taking classes and, and, for instance, working for the head of the business school in some capacity. I, it, was, it was essentially editing videos for him, promo videos for some of his courses and, and departments in the business okay. school. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I'm similar to you in the sense that it wasn't a direct path for me to get to even working in sports professionally. I was oh, a no, business yeah. major Sorry, we took myself. A, yeah. Yeah, no, it, we I, took a long route to, to get just to, to essentially no. college. But I, yeah. absolutely, to get to your original question, I think like to me it was always a hobby up until I got out of college. And even in college, I, you know, my major was international relations. I really thought I was going to be working in international affairs or mm -hmm. political affairs in, in somewhere in the public space. But as I said, that you know, having that hobby kind of live alongside you your entire life. At some point, when you have you know your first opportunity to engage it, to engage with it in a way that you could get a gig and make some money off of it, all of a sudden you kind of realize that you can make that a reality as well if you wanted to. Right. What was that first gig for you? If you don't mind me asking, the first professional setting where you were able to use. The production side skills. Right. So when I graduated college in 2010, uh, the first thing I did was I went out to Brussels and worked for a year out there. And when oh. I got back, All right. uh, I mean, yeah, I, I'm going to skip over a lot of stuff because I bounced around, like I said, kind of in the, in the public affairs world for a while before actually starting my own business in New York. But my first gig was right before we started our, my business in 2010, or pardon me, 2011, I worked for this think tank, this kind of economics and political think tank in New York City called uh, Rubini, uh, Rubini Global Economics, uh, and I was essentially their um, their video producer, video op and video cam op and video producer for little interviews and short segments that they would do for Reuters that would get distributed and syndicated through the Reuters mm -hmm. network. So that was, you know, the first time I actually was dealing with big industrial cameras, setting up my own lighting, and prompting and, and producing talent on camera. And then okay. going and taking it to edit and turn it around in a day and deliver it to Reuters. So you found that job, you were able to succeed, you found something that you were kind of good at and you took a liking to. Do you ever look back at that, you know, kind of think about where, where you've come since then or how one little thing, if it would have gone a different direction, could have pointed you somewhere else? To totally, because to me that wasn't, you know, even at that point, I, even though that was my first real taste of 
professional production and media, it didn't feel any any more involved than than it had been as a hobby my entire life. Right. So that real inflection point didn't come until I came to the NFL. And for four years before I came out here to Los Angeles to work for the NFL, I was running my own business in New York City. And I was super involved in media. We were essentially doing marketing and branding. Eventually uh, took more of a turn towards web development, web design, and, and uh, online marketing and, and advertising. But I was always involved in media there, like super hands-on. You know, we had equipment, we had cameras, lights. Uh, we would shoot on location all the time for, for different purposes. We'd do promo videos. We did webisodes for various small businesses and individuals, online personalities. So, you know, even even when I did work outside of either my own business or or just that kind of creative stuff as a hobby, and I went into the professional world with it, it all kind of felt more or less the same. I'd had the practice, I'd had the experience, and it wasn't until I came to the NFL where I kind of fused my passion for sports and media in a much larger organism, a well-oiled machine mm-hmm. such as the NFL, media-wise, that you know has some of the best content, a lot of the top-of-the-line resources to be able to be creative and just talented individuals all around you. It wasn't until I, I entered that world that I really... That was, you know, there was a real kind of inflection point where I told myself, you know, this is really something that I'd like to do with my life. Yeah, no, uh, I, I totally can see where you're coming from there, talking with Tim Adams on the Money Mitch Effect. And we came in the, together at the NFL season 2014. There's about 25 to 30 of us that came in together. Yeah. What was the process like of you landing on the NFL's radar? What, what made you, I guess, apply for that right. job and then ultimately take the plunge? Right. The way I look at it, it was pretty pretty serendipitous. So I was running my business out in New York and which by the way, two of my good friends still run and operate uh, shout out to the Vaughn group. Um, sure. Definitely look them up if you're in the New York city area and you need marketing or branding or web dev and web design services. They're really some of the best, but yeah, I, you know, as, as that business was kind of taking a turn for more of the kind of web and, and tech heavy side. I, I, when I was really kind of looking to get more into media and production, I had just reconnected with an old girlfriend who had moved to LA just two months prior. And she was working uh, as an assistant general manager here at an Equinox. And funny enough, one of the first people that she got to come join at Equinox to, to you know, get a membership was our good friend, Jeff Talley. Wow. <laughs> so You're right. uh, I was not expecting this. Yeah, <laughs> for those who don't know who yeah. Jeff Talley is, he's a good friend of ours and yeah. also quite a legend in general. Great guy. Great but guy. Also great. just a great, yeah. Fan of uh, metal and 80s movies. That'd be the best way to describe him. Right. And, and sort of the glue, so to speak, in the video department at the NFL. He kind of keeps, keeps the whole place oh, I agree running the way it's supposed to be running. But yeah, so funny, you know, just kind of the way the world and life sometimes works. Like, I had just reconnected with this girlfriend. She just met this guy, Jeff Talley, who worked at the NFL Network, who happened to tell her that, you know, they were looking to hire new uh, producers and editors and, you know, into this kind of general pool that you were talking about. There were about 30 people who got brought on that mm-hmm. year. Um, and she told him about me. We connected. I came out here for a visit to visit her, interviewed with him and Alex Wilk. Yeah. Another great, great NFL dude. Uh, interviewed with him. Uh, he gave me a little tour. I went back to New York, interviewed with uh, Dylan Milner, okay. senior producer on the Fantasy Show, and yeah. I believe a couple other things at this point. And yeah, got the got the job offer. And so my girlfriend and I had kind of both been talking about, well, are we gonna? Should I move to LA? Should she move to New York? She had been applying to jobs in New York, and I'd been applying to jobs in LA. And 
this one hit and it was kind of as, you know, as close to a dream job as, you know, one could imagine. So right. uh, it, I had to it, take the plunge. And it worked out, obviously, in your case, as it did for most of us that came through. I was very impressed with the hiring that the NFL did. And frankly, I was happy to be a part of the team. To be that team was honest. amazing. It was pretty oh, man, that team was dope. So now you've had a couple years at the NFL and you've got to take on some really cool assignments. We'll get into a few of the things that you've done. I know it's there's a lot. We wouldn't have time to get into everything. But you've gotten to go and travel a lot on the job. And a couple Super Bowls, if I'm correct, as well. One Super One Bowl. One Super Bowl. I went in a Pro Bowl. Yeah, a Super Bowl and a Pro Bowl. But last year's Super Bowl on the field before yeah. the game, that's got to be a thrill for any sports fan. Man, yeah. I mean, talk about the unexpected. I, I, I never really imagined working at the NFL Network, for one. But let alone to be on the field at Super Bowl 50, you know, in, in my second year there, it's, it's, it almost seemed unfair. You know, I've, I felt like I, had, I was in a position that I was absolutely lucky to be in. But like, I'm, you know, there was probably a kid that had been dreaming of that moment for longer than I had in a more realistic way than mm-hmm. I had. And so to be there was kind of surreal. I mean, in that sense, it just it, it you know, didn't feel like I was actually there until I'd already left. And I was watching the videos that I took on my cell phone and thinking to myself, wow, like this is this was a historic moment. You know, this was the 50th anniversary of America's biggest sporting event. And I was right there taking it all in on the field. I mean, taking pictures next to uh, Kevin Durant, who's also an accredited photographer. So right. <laughs> literally saw this. This tall dude walk up next to me, right up, you know, we we're right up at the um, he's a legit on the sideline. Oh, he's huge, yeah. So you know, I was the biggest guy in my immediate space at the time, and then this dude kind of brushes up next to me and starts taking photos, and I'm like, oh damn, this guy's tall. <laughs> and then uh, uh, he kind of, he starts walking out onto the field, past the sideline, like onto the field, walking up to Von Miller. I'm like, wow, this photographer is ballsy. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I cannot be doing chances. that. But he, uh, it turned, you know. Turns out he turns right around with Von Miller and starts posing for pictures, and it's Kevin Durant, and I'm right there wow. to get like a beautiful photo of it. So I was happy to, uh, you know, to happen now, to be there. And you got to tell the story of at least a brief version of getting kind of trapped on the in the entranceway oh, yeah. because yeah, that yeah. when you first told me that story, I didn't believe you, and I've known you for a sure. couple of years now. But this the, the <laughs> have I shown you the, the video? Bottom, like I've seen the video. Oh, okay. it's remarkable. <laughs> but you tell the story for the listeners sure. know at the Super Bowl getting. Kind of locked in on the sideline. Right. So uh, right before the game started, you know, first of all, we all had uh, field level access passes for pregame and postgame, and you know certain people had access during the game as well. Like some of our camera ops were on there, obviously filming the whole time. But my pass specifically was pregame and postgame field access. So I was there pregame, you know, as much as I could, milk that time that I had on the field, and then I think the deal was as soon as the players went back into their locker rooms and prepped to come out for the game, we were supposed to be making our way out. So I kind of took my time and, and, right. and took it in. And then, you know, I heard some kind of rumbling in the tunnel. And so I was like, ooh, I better like kind of get out. And the only way you can get out from the field is through the tunnel. So I start walking up to the tunnel and about, I'm about to exit when all of a sudden the Broncos cheerleaders start coming out and oh, no. screaming and, and shaking their pom-poms. And they're like, but the, the lady on the Bronco comes out as well one of their, right, so to speak, right. mascots. And so I knew it was, you know, it was about to go down. Like it was, the game was starting. Yeah. And it was getting real. And so it's funny, as soon as the cheerleaders came out, I was right at the front of where the first cheerleader kind of stopped when she like, you know, the, the, who led them out. I was right there at the corner of the field and the tunnel. And I was literally standing right in front of the people sitting in the first row. And 
all these security guards just surround us and they basically locked down the tunnel and they're like, no one move. And like, <laughs> I, w I was for a second, I was like, damn, they're coming to get me. But it <laughs> yeah. turned out that in fact, yeah. they were just securing the area so that no one else could get through. So it was literally me, the cheerleaders, the horse and the lady and a bunch of security and guards. And camera. And my camera. <laughs> yeah. And probably one, you know, uh, NFL films camera, like right in front of me, I, this guy kind of popped up. But, um, so I'm stuck there. I, I realized like my pass, which is hanging from my neck, my access pass is, uh, is showing. So I flip it around yeah, to the side where it's, <laughs> I flip it around to the side where there, you know, there's nothing written on it. It's just blank and just kind of sit there and see how long I can stay there before someone notices. So, you know, the players come out, uh, they stand there for like 10 minutes, the fireworks go off, they run on the field, Peyton Manning like runs right by me. I have a video of him just like <laughs> zooming right by me in like two frames, you know, and then few minutes later, I mean, I got to talk to the cheerleaders. Uh, I got actually caught on camera. One of my good friends was shooting on a red, like a nice like red shooting slow-mo. And he caught me in this beautiful shot of just me kind of, wow, you know, having a nice incredible. little chat with the Broncos cheerleaders, which is something I'll get to show my grandkids one day. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's going to be a lot of jealous kids in that house when I re-show them. But well, that's amazing. And you know what? You put yourself in the right place at the right time. And who knew? Who knew when, you know, you accepted that job position a couple of years ago? Hey, moral of the story is just, yeah, you know, say yes to as many interesting and exciting things as you can because you never know where they may lead. And for me, this was kind of a no-brainer, but uh, <laughs> I, I definitely didn't expect that this would be the outcome. So, Hey, man, you never know. Still talking with Tim Adams on the Money Mitch Effect. I want to get back into one of, the, one of your other interests right now, Tim, music. Now, it all came about when, when you got to the network. I, I noticed you were very good at picking out songs, mixing them together. As we became better friends, I found out what much more deeper than that, even with the tracks on this podcast. As you explained it to me, you like to produce beats in your spare time. You like to make music. Where did that love come from? What, I guess, what prompted that growing up? You know, uh, I had, uh, I think it all started with some cousins that I had. Uh, on my mom's side of the family, which is mostly Polish. So I used to go out to Poland as like a baby. I mean, wow. talking one, two to visit them every summer. And like, as soon as I was able to kind of understand the world around me, started introducing me to all types of American music that they had acquired like a couple of years after it had come out in the US. So like wow. once it reached Europe, right? And it was funny because I'd, I'd kind of remember maybe hearing it in the US and then I'd come out there and they'd play me all these CDs and I'd recognize some of it. But I, Basically, just from a super young age, I got really into uh, music. I got, you know, a, I think a Walkman when I was like three. Mm -hmm. And just when, when you have a Walkman at age three, like you're going to get into music. It's yeah. just going to happen. My, my parents were really good at encouraging me. They, they put me in uh, piano lessons. Uh, I took trumpet lessons for a while. So like, you know, so at school, I, I was lucky enough to get to do like orchestra and jazz band. And, you know, once once you go through all of that and you're out of high school, like, you know, it's a part of you. You can't really escape the music side. So uh, I remember in high school, like I, I kind of set up a little mini music studio set up for myself in my room on like some PC, probably a Dell, had like a little mic and, you know, used to just bring friends over and we'd like make beats and, you know, rap over them wow. and, and, you know, get singers in and just like throw hooks on and just play around literally from, yeah, I think. It just sounds like it's a lot of trial and error and just Oh yeah, that just way. experimenting, just, you know, reaching out, like <laughs> grabbing whatever, you know, tools you could find to, to make sound happen and just make it happen. I remember, you know, back when I was like 10 and 11, when I first started doing it, before I even made beats, you know, I was just kind of like 
rapping over anything I could I could find. I don't think I had instrumentals back then from, you know, like you could now easily find them. I mean, in, in 2001, you could find them. But I'm talking like in 96, it was hard yeah. to acquire, or 98 maybe, it was hard to acquire instrumentals unless you got a vinyl and then you needed a player. So I would I would play songs through a set of speakers I had and then record them on a microphone into my computer and just oh. catch basically, you know, like the like certain breaks in the songs where there was only a beat and then I'd Newer, record them on my computer nine, something like old. that. <laughs> I didn't even know that I could plug in a wire to just directly connect the yeah. speakers to a computer. I was I was literally recording them <laughs> on a microphone coming out of the speakers into my computer and then I'd loop them. Wow. And then, you know, that's how it all started. And then once I once you, you know, once somebody who likes music actually records something once you love music and you're able to lay something down on a computer or just on a on an eight track or whatever and listen to it back and hear yourself coming off of this like piece of equipment there's just like some magic there that's, that's going on and yeah. like you're all of a sudden empowered and you're like wow like i just created this like in the same way that you know people in million dollar record studios are creating their music and so like you feel this like sense of newfound kind of capacity and I was just on a high. I mean, yeah. ever since that, like, I can't remember the moment, but I know there was a moment where, like, I couldn't go back. I couldn't, you know. Your life. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was taken by it completely. Wow. And that's like, that is a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's y years, you know, after that. Interesting. Just... I'm still trying to wrap my head around you learning pretty much American music from people in Poland. Yeah. <laughs> As I mean, an American. Yeah. These are, like, vague memories I have. Wow. But you'll get into music and mm -hmm. as you said traveling even you'll just play you would just play around and, and see what you could come up with to, yeah. to fill free time it's not a stretch then i guess to say that this was your biggest passion for a lot of your life maybe still is oh absolutely yeah if you if you talk to any of my friends back home in new york and you ask them like what was my thing they'd be like oh you know i mean now now they might be they're starting to talk videos as well yeah. but up until you know i came out to la they'd, they'd probably be like i mean He's about music. He's about making music specifically. Um, was it relative to hip hop, or did you, you know, I know a lot of the beats that I've heard have been hip hop related. You mentioned mm -hmm. rap music and, and laying down rap vocals over. Yeah. Has it been hip hop? There's, there's no doubt that yeah, the primary influence was always hip hop. But before hip hop, they, you know, I, I was listening to. I think the first real genre of music I listened to was like '80s, like pop and dance. Like I'm. I remember like Ace of Bass being like a big okay, yeah, thing like when I was like, really 90s, young. Yeah. yeah, just like that. That whole like you know at the time it was new. It was this new kind of like sound. It was electronic drums and stuff that like you know hadn't hadn't really been uh, used in that way. So I don't know. There was already in the same way that kind of that hip hop was for you know the late '80s and early '90s as well. There was this kind of sound that came from the. That's just one example. I mean, my my uh, my cousin on on my American side. I remember he gave me a Bob Marley tape when I was super young. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of that. Uh, you know, the Beatles, everything. I, I was I, I had my kind of classical and traditional musical upbringing. But yeah, you know, once once I really found like the uh, man, I don't know, like the Nas's and the Biggies and the Tupacs. I was <laughs> yeah, it was it was just mostly it was mostly hip hop. Yeah, and it's funny too about hip hop because, as you know, a lot of the music that they sample is from other genres, from some soul, some blues, some jazz, what have you. But I'm glad you brought up the rappers that you did because, as a New York guy, mm -hmm. 
and Tupac notwithstanding. Oh, he's East Coast references. He's, he's, he's about he, Baltimore. Actually, yeah, he, yeah. Was, he, he uh, grew up in New York for yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I could see I could see him kind of being claimed yeah. a little bit on the... But he was not. He was not somebody. You know, he was the soul that was not going to stay in one place. He, right. You know, very, a, very deep individual. He needed to expand his. But you're a New York guy, and coming up in the era era that you did, you pretty much had to strike gold with New York rap. I mean, nowadays, and I say it like I'm a, an old person, mm. but it's a little different now. Yeah. There isn't really this. I would just call it almost like a breeding pool of just unbelievable MCs that took over hip hop and and pretty much took it to where it is today what was it like being a new yorker in that period of time and being someone interested in music well i'll put it this way i mean i was a little white boy growing up in midtown manhattan you know in the early 90s i was just Mm -hmm. i was very little i was whatever in 95 i was eight uh, or seven there was stuff going on like in all the boroughs that i didn't really get to be a part of culturally because i was just too young yeah but I feel like I know that culture because of how well that was communicated through that early to mid to late 90s hip hop. Yeah, Yeah, it was like you listen to a big pun song (laughs) and you feel like you're, you know, out on a block party in uh, the Bronx or in Brooklyn or wherever. I mean, you feel like you're on a rooftop in the summer, like sun blazing and everyone's just out there partying and, and... bumping you know awesome music like that's just and you know all the references too because you're a new yorker and that's oh, sure. lost on most of the people that sure. hear the songs if you're not from yeah no i mean I, it goes without area. saying that we were all spoiled fans of hip-hop growing up in my generation our generation like growing up in new york you were spoiled because even in the mid-2000s or like the early 2000s you know where there had already been this kind of big shift in in the direction of hip-hop uh you know which obviously is continually reinventing itself, right? You can see what's going on these days. But even in the early 2000s, you still had this, like, you had these huge expectations because Tupac and Biggie had passed not that long before, just two, three years before. You had Big L who who passed from, you know, because of another tragedy, like tragic violence that was unnecessary. And in his case, uh, actually, they were looking, they... They weren't trying to get him. They were trying to get his brother. Oh, and that was right like Jay Z signed him too. Like yeah, that him. was gonna uh, that was gonna be. I I don't I don't remember if they had officially. I think he had signed. Just about yeah. He, he was, was gonna be. It was like so done. No yeah, it was a done deal. He was gonna be Rockefeller. That would have been incredible. Yeah. But um, you know, we had just lost so many people. You know, as close to the end of an era, literally, as you can get, uh, because it was it was just sadly the end for so many of these great artists. But it, so in that time, you know, early two thousands, there was just there was huge expectations. There was a sense that like that hip hop needed kind of a renaissance, and so like even then like these guys were coming out and they were so hungry and they had the same right. even though the culture was slightly different they were like they were trying new things they were collaborating with people that you know hip hop artists had never collaborated with before beats were starting to change but there was there was still this kind of competitive spirit on the lyrical side and like as we went through the two thousands the competition in my mind started to change away from you know, lyrics themselves and how sharp and on point they were and it kind of moved more towards something else, more of charisma, more okay. of swag, for lack of a better word. It sounds like you're not exactly thrilled with this shift that I, you kind of... Wish. I can't... Look, I, I mean, I have my own opinions <laughs> yeah. about, you know, the musicality yeah. of it. That's right. one thing. Like, to me, like, the boom bap generation is just what what makes me nod my head you know what i mean like that i'm just that's that gets me that takes me but you know nowadays like 
like the young gunners out there right now, you know, they, they captivate the young people like they do. And that's, that's undeniable. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just that like we we are a product of our, our past and our environment when we were growing up, um, just the same way these kids are. So I can't, I can't knock hip hop for continually reinventing itself. Evolving, like it, 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 it's going to do that. And it's going to keep doing that. Hopefully. I mean, the moment it stops doing that is probably the moment that it goes the way of, of jazz. I think hands down, no one's ever going to touch Biggie and Nas and Jay and, and Tupac. Like I, I, I just don't think that any of today's rappers can because they're just, I mean, it's really apples and oranges. I, mean, I don't mean to I say agree. they're not rapping. I'm just saying that they're not, they're not rapping the same rap that was rapped in the 90s and the 2000s. It's, it's a different game now. Before we move on to another topic, let's do a power ranking of New York rappers. And I'm going to leave, leave Tupac out of it just for semantics. This might be our give me, longest Give me your segment. Mount Rushmore. No, I, we can do, we can just do a, we'll, a, we'll do a, four. a fire one, round. We'll how about one to four? Oh, I, just, that might be easier. It might actually save us because five is always the hardest. Okay. Well, but we'll, we'll see if we can get to five. We'll go one we'll to four. Go four it's number one out of New York. And you know oh, what? Out of New York, right, right. Yeah, that's how, that's how I. So, so just for, the, for simplicity's sake, we'll exclude Tupac. Yeah. Because even though he is from New York, he wasn't really out yeah, of New York. Exactly. And um, and for another way to keep it simpler, mm-hmm. we're doing, I guess, rappers slash the lyricist version. It's so hard. I almost say you almost need two lists when you compare certain. You need eight. You know, you, need well, like, you have who's the better artist, Tupac or Biggie? Who is the better rapper, Tupac or Biggie? I think I just loaded the question there where you know how I stand on right. them versus well, each also, other. Man, it's all semantics. So, you know, do you, who's the, is the better artist the one that sold more? I mean, sure. you know, I but so. I mean, then Nelly wins, right? Like, <laughs> I think yeah. Nelly has the most right. rap sales or Outkast might be there and, you know, Eminem and whatnot. Which but. is why my number one. Man, one and two are just so deadlocked to me. But I go, I mean, you're Biggie, one. I go Biggie, one Nas, Biggie, two. Yeah. So yeah, so if we're talking about you know uh, in New York, I want yeah, because because longevity is a, a, like when your life is cut short at age you know twenty four, like his was, I believe he was twenty four. Um, yeah, you just got to give it to other guys like, being better artists. Yeah, he's never going to win the longevity argument. He's not going to win, you know. But you could tell that he wasn't. Had he stayed around, he wasn't going anywhere. Like he was, he had tapped into like. New York spirit in a big way for hip hop. Like New York had a bunch of a bunch of acts. Like they had a KRS One was from there. I mean, everyone. Oh, yeah. So many people came out of New York. Like, uh, and you had Mob Deep and Nas and, and Jay Z. Well, yeah, and he was and he was a young guy. And there were there were plenty of acts before oh, even the era of Jay Z right. for sure. And we go Wu Tang as well. If we're I mean, it's so problematic. Like, see now <laughs> now just my mind is just racing because like there's so many greats. But no, like. So yes, I, I would say I, would, I agree with you. For me, number one is Biggie in terms of like, when you say an artist coming out of New York, then you got to kind of think about how well they represent New York and really tap into like what the culture was, you know, and at Biggie's time, like he captivated people the way nobody else could. He was so versatile too. I mean, we know about his hit songs. We know about some of his hardcore rap songs that would never get played on the radio, especially today. Mm-hmm. But he would go on R&B songs. He had the songs that would make you dance. He he could do yeah. it all. And it's yeah. a shame. I mean, Twenty four. You know, Where what would he have been at thirty four? I mean, I know, dude, that's crazy. like it's crazy. It's crazy I mean, he think. he. You know, it was perfect too because he fit exactly the mold that that Puffy was was vibing with at the time. He had just been like working on this whole Motown sound, right, that, like, hadn't really been, like, really done in hip-hop at that time. 
you know, new kind of boom bap at the new new at the time, boom bap style drums over like this classic clean Motown and funk sound that just worked so well with Biggie because Biggie was not only a great lyricist but an amazing MC on the record. I don't I don't know about live. I mean, you know, I didn't there aren't really too many videos of Biggie live performances, but except like a couple, you know, there's some stuff he he I mean, you can see some concert stuff and there's amazing. I mean, some of the best videos of Biggie are ones you know, before he was famous, just like out on the street rapping. I mean, you've probably mm -hmm. seen a couple of those. Yeah. But he, he, he could just always control a crowd. He knew how to, you know, he was kind of, he was connected to the traditional mold of like what an MC was prior to the days of, of quote unquote rappers when you just, you know, you had guys up there on a mic and they were just controlling a party. They were like getting people hyped up at a party Yeah. and throwing around, you know, a lot of like, this is the place to be. No, I, I agree. And I think he could do it all. He had charisma, he could control crowd, it's a shame what happened. I, I went on my second throw Nas and then I probably put Jay-Z third. Mm. Nas to me, I don't know that he ever got to where we would have liked him to get commercially mm -hmm. and that's due to a lot of different factors. But as a pure rapper, Nas is the only guy I've ever heard that can challenge Biggie. I'll put it that way. Mm. Biggie's my number one right. and Nas on a rapping level is the only one that I would put pushing him. It's so tough, man. And I know, and I know we're excluding guys that are underground rappers that freestyle for sure, a living. But sure. if we talk like it's about, tough to talk about Big L in this conversation, right? Just I know. Because like we never he got was probably one of the most talented. Yeah. And if you, you put know, him at, if you put him at that four spot, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. Well, people always kind of like lump him in with someone, you know. Like I've heard a lot of people go like number four is like Pun and Big L, right? Yeah. And and like I know why you want to do that is because like. We didn't get to hear a whole lot from both of those guys. I mean, we, we got more from Pun, but like, big you know, those two were like both super representative of New York hip hop at the time. Put, or Put It On and Flamboyant. Flamboyant is mm -hmm. my favorite big MVP, uh, Ebonics. And I heard he, he could have been Kanye before Kanye because Jay-Z signed him with the intent of this is the next guy. Like, I know right, him right. and Kanye are different well, artists, I'll but it, yeah. this is the guy. And you saw with Jay-Z and Kanye, he's like, right. this is the guy. Well, he wasn't as versatile know. as Kanye was. There's definitely, you know, he wasn't making his own beats, you know. He was. I it sounds like I know we're in a time where we're not sure what's next with Kanye, but. Yeah, well, I mean, I said that Kanye, <laughs> Kanye is definitely like, he, you know, he got big and he got put on because of the music he made. And then, you know, he kind of got to get on tracks. Like Takeover on, was he, the beat he did. Oh, yeah. And he, <laughs> he did plenty of other ones, even yeah. for other artists. But, yeah, when he started working really closely with Jay-Z, Jay decided, you know, he's going to get on records and be big and, like, be, like, the next big thing. And I, I think you're right. At the time when he was signing Big L, he probably saw Big L in that same kind of light. But that's also because at the time, you didn't have producers that were kind of also rapping that were, like, it wasn't... You know, as long as you were just like an amazing rapper, you could be the next big thing. But by the time Kanye started getting bigger, that the landscape was changing. Right. And you couldn't just be like a great rapper. Kanye kind of had a more interesting story, and he made the beats so people already knew him. And then he kind of like <laughs> crept into the to the uh, you know to the Billboard scene. So do you go in that order then? Do you go Biggie, Nas? It's again, you know, Jay Z, Pun, or do you switch some around? I'm I'm trying my hardest not to like qualify the, the terms even further and you know because it's tough because when you say like the best rappers to come out of New York or the top five out of New York for me especially being from New York it means like who represented New York best okay. so what I say may not necessarily 
match what someone from outside of New York says because like yeah if you didn't grow up in the culture you know, know exactly you're judging you're probably judging purely based off like skill and how how good you just think it was on a very uh, uh, subjective level and and I, of course I am too but for I, I might agree with you with Nas in the sense that if Biggie's rap kind of really encapsulated the way New York would speak if they if it was a rapper I think Nas's beats and his production sounded the way that New York would sound. Right. I mean, I never heard... I, I wasn't old enough to listen to Illmatic when it came out. Mm-hmm. But I remember getting that CD probably four or five years later mm-hmm. when I first heard New York State of Mind, when I first heard One Love. When, and it's like, okay, this is a distinct sound. Oh, yeah. I think it was Mob Deep, one of the prodigy or somebody in, in the New York scene that mm-hmm. said, Illmatic just had songs that made you cry as a New Yorker. Like it yeah, just perfect. No, it's crazy. I mean, it, and it's, that to me is the best album I think ever rap. But that's uh, my personal. Yeah, I, I might agree <laughs> with you. It's tough, man. That 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 whole because I was also a huge fan of Reasonable Doubt, of course. But yeah, I, I would definitely put Illmatic just a slight slight cut above. It's a classic of classics of classics. Like, and yeah, it sounds. It just has this kind of grittiness. Uh, but also this kind of like it's grittiness like surrounded by some soft edges like the production is like gritty and grimy but it's also kind of beautiful and pleasant sounding like you get little soft like key plucks and soft like um, uh, like electric pianos and stuff in there but on top of like grimy gritty bass drums and snares and record vinyl scratch noise and and dust and, and yeah it just I don't know. He he had an amazing uh, team of producers on that, by the way. I think if you go through, if you ever go through the Illmatic pro- like list of producers that worked on it, I mean it's everyone. It's DJ Premier, Q-Tip. There's a documentary, I believe, about the making of Illmatic. I'll and, have to check it out for sure. Oh man, they go through all like the producers are incredible. Well, and I you know I'm a big Nas fan, and it was written I think is perennially underrated. Maybe my favorite individual song. And everyone has their own. That just me. I love Nas's like. I just love, the, like, I love yeah. the theme from that. I also saw, what, a 19-year-old Ron Artest make his TV debut in that yeah. video. But I'm just... <laughs> I was a fan of how he crafted his lyrics. I thought it was very good. He was a great was poet. Good. And yeah, he was an amazing lyricist. And is there a rapper from New York that you think maybe doesn't represent the city as well? Currently? I, well, <laughs> we talked or, about ranking. Well, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Kind of like, from, I, from close to that era, it always kind of surprised me. I think it surprised me the first time I heard that DMX was from New York. <laughs> okay. uh, I love DMX, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you know, like that Rough Rider kind of style felt a little bit more like I'm not gonna say Southern, but maybe like Mid Eastern Seaboard kind of. I always assumed he was like from just south of New York somewhere, <laughs> or maybe or maybe North, like like a little bit further west, like North Northwest of New York, like from one of those northern states. So when I this when I different. when I found out he was actually from New York, New York, you know, I was kind of like, okay. Yeah. He, he was just such a unique and different sound in general. I mean, he was, yeah. he was the dog. No, I hear what you're saying. There's nobody been like him before or after, and that may or may not be a good thing. Why did you have somebody that you felt like didn't represent New York? No, I, I couldn't really answer that question because uh, yeah, I'm not New York, sure. so I don't know. I, and I just want to hear your take right. on somebody no, that I mean, had the moniker, and that was a good example. Look, now, I mean, I was also surprised to hear the designers from New York. Well, I mean, now we're just getting into... I know, but you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you never, you know, you can never judge a book by its color. For sure. We'll talk about Tim Adams on the Money Mitch Effect, and before we wrap this up, we got to tie it back to sports, Tim. As a New Yorker, now, I want to get this right. You're 
Yankees, mm-hmm. Giants, Giants, Knicks, Knicks, and the Rangers, Islanders, Mets. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't follow hockey that much. Yeah. But I remember when they won the '94 Stanley Rangers. Cup. You know, anytime you have like a sports moment like that in your city, it has a big impact on you. So, like, I remember just the excitement and the fun that they you know, that that we had. But you know, I think in in that same era, like. The Yankees had about three or four, I mean, within the span of five years, right after that, right? And I think that was maybe, I was like a little bit older, and so like just the frequency of Yankee championships kind of like focused my attention more on on baseball, because I think at that point, like, I wasn't going to about to go into like a fourth sport. Well, and I wonder too, like, the Knicks, the Nets just moved to Brooklyn, so it's a different example, but for Giants and Yankees, that seems to be the common pair. Why yeah. is it in New York? And I've, I've asked this question to some Chicago yeah. people as well. What draws you to yeah. a certain team when you it, have multiple options? There's, there's definitely some very general geographical kind of distribution of uh-huh. fan base. Sure. And But again, I mean, you have all types everywhere you go. So, But there are definitely, you know, I'd say there are parts of Long Island that I think, you know, lean more one way or another uh, in terms of which team you'd pick. But, uh, you know, to me, I always kind of just thought, some people just like the phonetic rolling off the tongue of like Nets, Mets, Jets, you know, like yeah. you just either went with that or you went with Yankees, Knicks and Giants and like Yankees, Knicks and Giants just have, they have the history because of that. They have the numbers and the championships. In terms of winning, it's it, well, there's, close. Yeah, of course not. But then, you know, the Yankees have been around, you know, were around for like what 50 years yeah. longer than the Mets right. and with basketball, it's another story, but in terms of like being a New York team, like the Knicks kind of just have so, that. So who held the mantle then as the athlete, I guess, in your childhood? Who was, the, early, king, who was right. the king of New York sports-wise? Was it Jeter? Well, yes, but before Jeter, in my mind, it was probably Patrick Ewing. Like when I was a, oh, you know. Yeah, that's interesting is, to me. I agree. Like I would agree with that. before 95, like, you know. Yeah, that's interesting because... I don't know I, how he's remembered in New I'm, York. I guess you know that, yeah. But there was a lot of sense of, I guess, unfulfillment. Oh, once he left, I mean, it yeah. was over. Like, it was over. <laughs> the yeah. Patrick era was absolutely over in everyone's mind and, and heart. But, you know, when he was there, I mean, like, you know, and I was, you know, I was young, but I was a big man, so to speak, right? Like, I was, you know, play, when I was playing basketball, like, you know, I was usually the biggest one on the court. So, like, I kind of... Uh, related to to him and like I mean, he was just not to finger roll them that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, to this day, I, I I try not to finger roll at all. I think it's super. It's like a super awkward way of laying the ball up. Always go off the backboard. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I mean that makes yeah. that does make. He was sense, just the guy, you know. Yeah. He was like he was the the big man on campus, so to speak. Like he he had like this presence and energy like that. And I wanted to ask you about the Knicks because you're a big basketball fan. And the other teams, I mean, the Yankees, they're not going to win every year. It's been a little bit of a rough patch, but you got to feel like... I'm excited. I'm excited about the Yankees, man. Gary Sanchez was amazing last year. Unreal. He's, he's, I mean, you know, you hear it from... This isn't just like Yankee fans saying this. I mean, you hear it from people all throughout the league working with different teams that are just like, they had, you know, people admitting they haven't seen anything like this since and then they name someone that blows your mind, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, they had a board like, of him and, like, you know, Ruth and Gary. Sure, yeah, like, and that's okay. like, all right, okay, like, you know, <laughs> chill. But, like, you know, he's, he's getting compared to, like, real dudes, you know? Like, yeah. Tony Gwynn, like, it's, that's course. insane. Like, 
I don't know. It's something to look forward to, something to like, you know, make make the games exciting, <laughs> but obviously give give them a chance to hopefully. Well, you figure they're going to be good in the near future. The Giants have won two Super Bowls in the past decade yeah. over Tom Brady and the Patriots yeah, yeah. in improbable fashion. So at the back of your mind, you can just put that up. Be like, we. Yeah, yeah that, that's automatic. I mean, it's automatically for New York Giants fans, just like a get out of jail free card. Oh. In for 2008, it was just thought, like that. You know, it's like you can have, you know, the Pats can have yeah. like all those other <laughs> records and we stats. Like, season. We're good. <laughs> yeah. We're good. It was, I still to this day remember watching that, and I don't know how you felt going into that game. I 2008? Had, yeah, 2008. I thought you guys might have had a chance just because of how tight you played them in week 17 that year. Right. But I honestly, and my friends are my witness, did not think that the Giants were going to win that game until the helmet catch. That was the only time in the game where I'm like, they might pull right. this off. Right. Not a second, no matter what the score was. Yeah, it was so bleak, man. Yeah. At that moment, it was just a boring, slow game. Yeah, the Pats take the lead late. You're and like you over. just, you know, that play where, um, like Manning's just like, he's about to get sacked six yeah. times. So you were just like, oh, it's over. He's getting sacked, and I think that was like a third down. I don't even remember. remember it was at this third point, one, right? Fourth down. Uh, that was ridiculous. Yeah, and I remember. The, I'm, not, the, I'm not gonna lie. I still didn't. Even after that, I, I was like. You know, I was I was worried. <laughs> this man. It wasn't, it was this is kind of dangerous. Yeah. Well, my my UI Manning theory quickly is I think he's he doesn't give me the vibe that he's the brightest guy in the room, so he just doesn't think. So when the right. pressure moments are on, nothing he gets to him because yeah. he's just gonna. Play. So if he doesn't get hit, he looks like he's doing an amazing job. Right. He's what he's <laughs> doing he's, is he's just out there to play. Like he's I don't want to say too dumb to know the moments too big for him, right. but doesn't. But anything phase him. Well, you, yeah, player. Eli, you know, has kind of become the butt of <laughs> a lot of different types oh. of jokes around the league. And, you know, again, as a Giants Two fan, like, Super that's Bowl fine. <laughs> that's totally fine. Yeah. Well, I wonder now about the Knicks, though, because they're the one team that hasn't really picked up the winning mantle, not winning a championship mm-hmm. in over 45 years now. Right. Is it going to change soon? I, I look at this year's team, Tim, and it was an interesting approach. I'll give them credit for creativity. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest with you. The only decision that I wasn't at least okay with, and it's hard to say this because he's actually a friend of mine, kind of, uh, someone that I grew up with and and went to high school with, middle school and elementary school, but Joakim Noah, I didn't think that that was was a good move, and that kind of comes off as a no-brainer to most people, given his his injury-plagued past, and, you know, it's just, the output just isn't there, and they're paying him a lot of money, and I think it's a four-year deal. So, but yeah. you're all right with Rose, though. I am okay with Rose. Okay. I mean, we there's like we needed a point guard, like <laughs> and that's the so truth. That's badly the point, for years. Like we kept point. trying to. As a Knicks fan, you kind of just look at it as like the gods just threw us the wrong pieces that would just kind of get us excited for a while, and then you know, like I mean, really since two thousand and one, two thousand and four, maybe like it was just. You know, we went through the Marbury era, the Steve Francis, like, a couple of years <laughs> that there. Like, too. <laughs> oh, man, like, Eddie Curry. I remember, like, in 2010, I think it was, right, when when Stoudemire came on. It felt as though the gods had thrown us just something. And we had an amazing team, mostly because of the, the role players on that team. But, like, we weren't going to win anything. We weren't going to, like, really go all that far with Stat as our main guy. Yeah. And then we got Mello, and, like, he's a top 
five scorer in the league. He's, you know, offensively, arguably the best or top three, maybe just in terms of like ability to get to the basket and make it happen. But he's not somebody that wins championships either. I mean, in my mind, and the whole roster was pleased to get him. That's the part is how many pieces that, got traded that in Denver for him? team that we gave away. So when the Knicks made that trade, yeah. right. And traded Gallo, uh, who else they trade? Did they get rid of Felton that year? Felton was in that deal. I think too. Um, what's his name? Oh man, there were so many good dudes. It was. Uh, I'm forgetting the other guy's name. Not Channing Fry, but um, but yeah, they gave away a lot of players, and when you do that, you don't have teammates to play with. And I, I wanted your take on the Mello side. I will say this though before that Noah, and I have mixed thoughts on him too. I was a fan of his out of college, actually. Yeah, he won me a little mm-hmm. bit of money in my in an office bracket with that Florida team. Oh yeah, oh, but the, of the year. But the little things are just you can't put what he does on a stat sheet. Oh so no, I, for he sure. does provide value. I will they say, they overpaid yeah. for him, oh. and it could be costly. And it's safe to wonder at I think he's you know close to thirty now, right around that mm-hmm. age. Older, batted multiple injuries. Is he going to still be as effective when we get into the later years of that deal? Yeah, so that's where it's there. I'm a big fan of Noah. I work in tennis. Yannick Noah is a the tennis sure, pro. I mean, you sure. know, our fans of his as well. Yeah, family's so. got good genes. I think his yeah. sister has <laughs> been a model. Yeah. She's well, a, uh, <laughs> there's some jokes there I'm going to steer clear of. But, no, I, I see what you're saying, and it's just tough. But the Mellow thing, you have Carmelo. You have, finally, for the first time in however long, the Knicks drafted a blue chip potential superstar in Porzingis. Mm-hmm. When's the power going to gonna be? Him. When's yeah. the power going to be transferred? Is it already happening? And, and what's your take on how, or if they can even coexist? Right, I think they can coexist, but it's going to be a challenge because, because where do we Mello. start? Where do we <laughs> because start? Of Mello. Well, of course, it's definitely <laughs> because of Mello. But the challenge is actually: Will the Knicks finally decide that that they're going to take the hard steps and make the difficult decisions necessary to build around a guy like Porzingis properly, right? To, like, make him the guy because he has to be the guy. Like, well, I think it takes Dale Phil Jackson not running the team from his L.A. mansion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a whole <laughs> that other, that's a whole other topic of, of conversation. No, I watched the sure. end of their Mixed game. with, like, yeah. uh, Bob Dolan, right, playing, <laughs> oh, playing in his, like, bluegrass James band James all around Dolan, the country. Yeah. Sorry, did I say Bob Dolan? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, James Dolan. James yeah. Dolan. Yeah, James Dolan playing his bluegrass band like he just all had, the country. Dolan just hadn't put out a good product for, and he hadn't cared. You you said he just likes to play in his band and doesn't want to put a good product He's, on the floor. Yeah, nothing, man. He he <laughs> doesn't care. He's like carefree and he kind of like admits it. I think like openly, he's just like yeah, you know, whatever. I watched the game the other night. I forget who the Knicks were playing, but Porzingis was going uh, off, and then you get to the fourth oh, quarter, hmm. and he is just a non-factor. They almost, it almost looked like they were freezing him out of the lineup. And is that Melo intimidating him? Porzingis, everything he's done and said, he's a good mm. teammate. He wants to learn and be accepted by this great player. It's going to take something. I don't know if Melo will do it on his own. You need leadership that's going to hold him accountable and be like, we have a plan. We want to get him more involved. You're right. It's going to take time. They could work, but I'm not seeing it likely it right now. No. And, and so when I think about Porzingis, what excites me is not so much how he fits with Melo. I mean, really, that's why kind of what I was saying before is that, like, I just hope the Knicks treat this guy like he's special because he is. He really is. And what we were talking about earlier with regard to uh, uh, Noah, right? Like, can he really, can Noah ever get back to some kind of 
place health-wise where he can actually be efficient based on what we're paying him. I don't think so. However, the things we got him for, the stuff that he really showed in his prime, like the ability to run down the court with speed and like dribble the ball down, like take it coast to coast and just like put it in and like handle the ball like decently well for a big guy, great defense, the ability to like transition like super quickly. Porzingis has shown that he's capable of a lot of those things. On certain plays, like you can see little flashes of that. And he, in my opinion, the goal should be like, you bite the bullet with Noah. Maybe you have Noah there to kind of like guide Porzingis. I mean, we'll see how that goes in in his personal (laughs) life, like off the court. Yeah. (laughs) But in my, you know, if if he can be there to kind of guide him a little bit through some of the defensive stuff, like get Porzingis to kind of buy into like some of the stuff that made Joakim Noah great. He's capable. I've seen him do it in the game. Like he has the same and had that same quickness. Like he got down the court. I don't know if you saw that yeah. that crazy play the other. Like he stole the ball, dribbled it all the way down the court, and yammed it. And he's developing step backs like Dirk has. Oh yeah. And oh he yeah. He's a very and he very fast he player. looks yeah and he doesn't look awkward like a lot of those seven foot you know oh, even shooters he's do. He's like he knows his own body pretty well. He knows how to how to maneuver. Or in his own body. So it's, it's we're, good. we're looking forward to that. Hopefully it can work out. But hey, you know it's tough. It's the NBA. And the balance of power is just so tight at the top that you almost need a couple of these impact players. You need some luck. We'll see if the Knicks have a couple more draft classes in them. I think Porzingis could be a, a future superstar in this league for sure. Yeah, yeah. You almost, I mean, they can do it with smart trades. But it's going to take some more draft picks for sure. Some smart draft picks. So again, like I'm not, I wasn't one of those people who was buying into this this new Knicks team, really going all that far. I'll be happy if, obviously, I'll be thrilled if they make the playoffs. But I have no delusions that you know they're <laughs> going to be making it out of the East. So, <laughs> well, that's you know, fair. That's it, fair. It, like I said, and again, I'd be happy if they make the playoffs. If they were, if they're, they're probably about a 500 team. Given all the problems with Joe's health, pro- with Joakim Noah's health problems, just the mellow factor, right? And just the fact that it just seems like the Knicks don't know how to play the second half of games. Right. Like, they always seem to do so well in the first and second quarter. And then something happens after they come out of that locker room at halftime. And stuff just, like, they something goes off. Right. And I want to give them some time. I think Hornacek can be a good coach. I actually he really got like screwed out of, out of Phoenix, man. That, that they went tank mode without mm-hmm. telling him, and I, know, yeah, yeah, I think this will be good for him here. And that's the challenge: is like you know, you don't want no Knicks fan wants the Knicks to tank. I mean, there are a couple out there who are just like, let's go after those picks because we we gave up so many picks for so many years and just really closed ourselves in, like closed our future mm-hmm. in, and, and it all kind of imploded, and we just went through these kind of desperate met you know we took all these desperate measures to bring on this guy and that guy to like try to patch things up and just like limp through seasons until like you know we got we played 82 games and like i i hope we can take advantage of what we have in porzingis to like you know do it the right way this time i hope so for your sake too well tim this is fun before i let you go i know you're working on some stuff at nfl network mm-hmm. and that really uh, creative idea that you guys were talking about we talked about before we went on here mm. actually going to cities 
to find bars for teams not from that city. Yeah. Shed some light on that. It's a little yeah. confusing, but the idea actually sounds pretty cool. It's cool, yeah. I uh, um, So there was this idea that the NFL sold to, uh, uh, to Miller Lite, actually, as a sponsorship. This idea of covering different bars in different cities that cater to transplant fans. So fans that come from another city, right? Say a, a New York Giants fan moving from uh, New York and moving into Green Bay, Wisconsin, and finding their fellow Giants fans a venue to go watch the Giants games and you know kind of build their community in a home away from home or in a, in a new city. Mm-hmm. So we thought that it might be kind of cool to go to some of these locations, find the best Giants bar outside of New York or the best Packers bar outside of Green Bay and do a little story on them and those people who, you know, the majority of whom are transplants from that other city um, and just kind of see what these bars do to give them like a flavor of home. So do they, you know, provide, do they have food that comes from that hometown? Do they try to mimic the feel of the stadium on game day, playing the same soundtracks, doing the same music drops? Um, Obviously, like the way they decorate and just like spend a game day with these fans and talk to them about what it's like to a be a transplant in that new city. You know, what's the, what's the dynamic like, like, is there another team in that city that, you know, they kind of are always competing with on Sundays in terms of like real estate at bars or whatever. So it's, it's a fun experience because we get to travel all over the country and hang out at these bars with different teams, fans every Sunday. And it's interesting to both for me personally, just to go travel to some cities I haven't been to yet, but also to meet people from other places I, I have yet to be. And, you know, getting this a sense of the dynamic between Pats fans in Austin and Packers fans in Denver and Steelers fans in New York and getting to know these different personalities. It's a lot of fun and the content is kind of fun and it's coming together pretty nicely. Uh, we just got back from, we actually, the last one we did was here in LA, so we didn't have to travel far for that one. But there was a Broncos bar that we covered here. Uh, you may be familiar with Brennan's. Brennan's, oh yeah. And Marina Del Rey. Yeah. The turtle races. They did turtle races. Yeah, they actually did a specialty turtle race for us with uh, little Broncos and Saints helmets on the uh, turtles to uh, kind of predict oh, the outcome so that was of the, the game. game. That yeah. was the game. It wow. was the game. Talk about and striking so, gold. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy, crazy end of the game. But the turtle race was equally, it was fun. Like we, we shot the turtle race first in the morning and it was they were neck and neck, like up until the finish. And then the Bronco just slightly came out in front. Both feet and bounce. Both feet and yeah. bounce, yeah. yeah. But uh, but then it's, it's just funny how the, that that's almost exactly the way the game went. Crazy wow. ending. It was, for sure. Well, you guys are doing a lot of good stuff. You know, I'm sure you'll be keeping up with that. And if you can figure out a way to get make the Browns win a game, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> wish, wish I could help you there, man. I have yeah. Isaiah Crowell on my fantasy team. And... Uh, it's a tough world there for a running back who doesn't yeah. have a quarterback to uh, distract the defense. But thanks again, Tim, for coming on the show. And thanks again for making music. You're welcome anytime. And I hope to have you back soon. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Keep doing what you're doing. Big thanks goes out to Tim Adams for coming on the show. Also, again, for supplying the beats and... Now he's doing big things. Can't wait to see where it goes. And we're going to have to further that NYC rap conversation and NYC sports conversation. Both of those in the near future. Too much left on the table. All right, now it's time to preview the Ohio State-Michigan game that kicks off tomorrow at noon Eastern, 9 on the West Coast. 
John Rydell is a Buckeye fan like myself. We're going to preview the game. It is a good one. Money Mitch Effect, John Rydell, Ohio State, Michigan preview. Here it is. Okay, so now joined by John Rydell, fellow Ohio State fan like myself, we're ready to preview the game. It's the Saturday, number two versus number three in the country, Ohio State, Michigan. John, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Hey man, great to be here. I know you're excited, I, I can tell we're doing this on a Wednesday, day before Thanksgiving, but you're already well in your uh, Ohio State hat, ready to go. I want to touch first, before we get to the magnitude of this game, John, on the fact that you know we've both been fans for a long time. What, when exactly? Can you pinpoint when you first became a Buckeye fan and, and what that journey's been like? Yeah. So growing up, I'm from Ohio. My first real recollect, recollection of college football: '97 Rose Bowl, Arizona State, Jake Plummer. Oh yeah. You know that year, I remember vaguely, vaguely remember watching Ohio State, Michigan, and I remember the Rose Bowl. I remember sitting there with my dad, my grandpa and beating Arizona State, and that was a big thing because Arizona State that year was just so great. And uh, I remember Ohio State beating them, you know, whatever it was, 20-17, to 17, and dashing Plumbers' national title hopes. Yeah, that game in particular is also probably one of the first ones I remember, and winning it in the fourth quarter. Arizona State would have been a title contender that year, making up, uh, putting a nice end to the Buckeye season, which, you know, didn't look like it was going to be that way losing to Michigan that year, but no, it, it's been it's been quite a journey. This rivalry cements it. You know, as we go forward into this game and, and kind of look at what the rivalry means, what would be the best way, John, that you could use to describe what this game means uh, to you as a fan of the Ohio State University Buckeyes? I mean, I follow sports really, really closely. I mean, I'm, you know, distant pro sports fan, but when people talk about rivalries, it's not any other rivalry is not in the same breath. I mean, the history with these two teams, say what you want, whatever all-time win record, Bo Woody, you know, implications in college football, playing the, the spoils, everything about this rivalry has those storylines to it, and it shows, you know, it's, it's unlike any other rivalry in sport. You know, and it stayed relevant, too. You mentioned Bo and Woody and what they did for the rivalry, how they made that game as big as it is. But yep. there are a lot of rivalries, John, you know, in, in all sports. But this one has stayed relevant and has stayed, you know, at the top of the radar for a while. you got to give credits to the players and coaches for, you know, yep. both performing on and off the field to make this still in the national spotlight. Yeah, I mean, you have Michigan, one of the winningest, I don't know what are, what are they are now, one or, one or two winningest programs of all, all time. Both teams playing spoiled to each other. You know, I don't know how many times the seasons come down to, one of us beating each other to for national title or Big Ten implications, and that's just how it's been. And it's it's a great thing because rivalries in pro sports, you'll have division rivalries, or or you know people say, well the the Browns or the Steelers, or in any other pro sports, they happen several times a year. Those games, you know, this has the makings like every time it's once a year, the same time of year, high noon. Everything about it is, is traditional, just like we celebrate all of our traditions with Thanksgiving and Christmas. All traditions have a certain meaning and a time to do them. This rivalry does the exact same thing. Right. I'm the same way with that. People ask me about the game itself. I'll give you the example, the noon kickoff on the East. 
and it could be a primetime game, but it's the way it is. It's tradition. We're used to it. We've come to expect it. I will say this, though. This rivalry has brought on a lot of good and bad memories over the years. We'll talk with John Rydell on the Money Mitch Effect about the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. John, what's some of your favorite moments from watching this game over the years? Well, my favorite moments in general, there's a few of them. January 18th, 2001, Jim Trestle gets the job at Ohio State. At a men's basketball game, he gives the speech, Mm -hmm. his first public address, and he ends that speech where everyone can say, you know, he goes, you'll be proud of our young people in the classroom, in the community, and especially in 310 days in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That kicked off the Trestle era perfectly. That was a, it's a very memorable moment. It showed what something that this rivalry didn't have a couple of years prior, like at the very end of the Cooper years. Mm-hmm. And it, Trestle coming from Youngstown State, it showed immediately, you know, he was going to stress the level of importance. So that one first comes into mind. Favorite moments in the in the rivalry in general would be like 2004. Ted Ginn returns that punt return for like 80 yards when we were down by six, and we end up winning that game. And then I mean, all over every everybody's you know talking about it right now. But the game uh, in in 2006, I mean, all the ramifications of that game was huge. And probably most recently the the 2013 game. You know, Marcus Hall, being a bonehead, gets ejected from fighting (laughs) in Ann Arbor, walking out, walking back to the locker room through the tunnel, giving the bird to the fans. Memorable. I mean, I bought the T-shirt. I love that. It means that much to those guys. At the very end, uh, Hope goes for two. Ty Allen intercepts the ball. Saves the undefeated season. They uh, go on to lose to Michigan State in the Big Ten title game that year. But... Those are some of the favorite ones of the rivalries. Yeah, there's been a lot. Uh, I know you mentioned the Trestle speech. I remember that as being a real game changer. And it's funny, too, because the game return, I wasn't able to, to watch. I remember listening to it on the radio, and the announcers couldn't keep track of how fast he was. It was 40 to the 10 to the, to the end zone. He was just yep. that fast. Yep, teleported. You know, the 06 game was... I, this is as close as we're going to get, two versus three, but at that time, you know, one versus two in Columbus, before the college football playoff, before they took four teams, they only took two. This was the best I could describe of a must-see TV game in a college football regular season. I remember a lot of these different moments over the years, and I think the one that I'll remember the, the most, an underrated moment, was the year before when Troy Smith led a fourth-quarter comeback in 05 against Michigan finding Gonzalez, Pittman in there as well. So this game in, has in got a lot moments. Yeah, there's been a lot. But I, I will preface it with this. We've been spoiled. We have to admit it. We've been spoiled the last couple of years dominating absolutely. this rivalry. In, there's in been generation, absolutely. There was a dark time, and not in the late 90s, early two, uh, stretching just into the early 2000s, John. You know, there was a dark time for Ohio State fans when Michigan was getting the end of the rivalry. And I know we both share some bad moments, so bad memories from that era as well. Yeah, the biggest one I think is everyone's, a lot of people forget about it, the implications of that game, but the 97 Ohio State Wolverine game, number two versus five, you know, people forget that Ohio State was ranked number five. Charles Woodson was the, basically the shoe-in for the Heisman, and he had a, a career game and stri- struck the Heisman pose, and every time I see a college highlight and he has to be in there striking that pose, and it, it makes me sick to my stomach. But a lot of people, you know, forget that Ohio State wasn't an awful team that year. We were number five in the country. 
Yeah, and that kept Ohio State out of the title game. I remember it, and Woodson, as much as I don't like Michigan, I had to tip my cap to him. He's David Boston's the all-time winning receiver at Ohio State, and Woodson just shut him down and kept us out of the title game. And to tie back in, you referenced the 2013 game. This is why going into this year or any year of this game, no matter what the odds are, no matter how big a favorite or underdog we are, nothing's a sure thing. Absolutely. 2013, we were huge favorites, and we were lucky to escape with the win. So while we are favorites going into this game, the Buckeyes are favorite. I'm still holding, it's a rivalry game. You can never write anything in beforehand. No, I mean, last week against Michigan State, I mean, Michigan State has turned into a rivalry game. And look at them. They've, lost, they've won three games, and we played them to the bitter end. And then you turn that up, crank that up tenfold when it's, you know, the scarlet and gray and maize and blue together. Yeah, throw records out the window. And anything can happen. And, yeah, we have been spoiled the, the last 15 years, and but we're getting back at them. It shows in the, the overall record. Isn't it interesting, too, with this game, John, that coaches, while obviously Urban Meyer Harbaugh, the goal is to win national championships, coaches get judged in how they do in this rivalry game. John Cooper was a good coach for Ohio State, but couldn't beat Lloyd Carr at the tail end. That was almost his swan song. And then Trestle flipped the script on Carr, and Carr had the stigma of not being able to win the rivalry game. It's so fascinating, and it really shows you how important this game is, that coaches are judged how well they do in this one particular game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Trestle's success, I mean, he lost what once to Michigan. He got Lloyd Carr fired. He got Rich Rodriguez fired. He got, well, at the tail end, he put the pressure on Brady Hoke, and, you know, Urban Meyer went in and for the kill shot at the, <laughs> at the end there. Yeah. But, yes, they, you are absolutely judged by how you do in this game. And even Brady Hoke was successful that the one year, uh, 2011, where we, were, we had Fickle as the... Uh, the interim coach, and he got the victory there, but you saw how long that lasted against Urban Meyer. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating, and you know that's not going to change as long as these two teams are playing. You will be judged as a coach and as a player for all you do in this game. Talking with John Rydell on the Money Mitch effect. All right, going into this game in particular, John, how, how would you rate your confidence right now? Ohio State survived last week against Michigan State. Michigan's a little banged up. It's at the horseshoe. How confident are you? I'll say publicly, very humble, going into the season, I was mentally prepared for a three-loss season. I thought this team, no matter how many stars you put behind a player that we have as a recruit and a player on the team, the fact is we lost a lot to the NFL draft, and we had a, we are the youngest team in college football. That is a fact. So I came into the season mentally prepared for a three-loss season. Confidence now is a lot better than, than it was. I went to the Oklahoma game, and I thought I was setting up to watch a massacre. I thought the Sooners were going to run us over and out of the game by halftime, and I was absolutely wrong. I had sideline front row tickets to the Oklahoma game, and I watched Urban and the guys march across in front of the Oklahoma tunnel as Oklahoma was sitting in the tunnel ready to take the field wow. with their heads up and silence the crowd. And it was absolutely amazing at the beginning of the game. I don't know that that got captured on the, the broadcast, but I walked in and I, or I saw them walk in and I said, holy crap, they just did that. I can't believe the confidence. And now these kids aren't some high school kids anymore and my confidence is high. Both teams are, what are we, top five defenses? Mm -hmm. So it's going to come down to ball control. Yeah. 
that's always the case in these rivalry games, and I would agree with you. I have pretty good confidence going into this game. Maybe even a little more than last year, considering where we were going into the game after the, the bad loss to Michigan State, but we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see what Ohio State, how they decide to uh, attack a, a Michigan-wounded offense and what new wrinkles on offense Ohio State has. And before we get specifically into the preview of this game, the other elephant in the room, John, is the playoff picture. And Ohio yeah. State wins. You'd like to think that no matter what happens, they're pretty much a surefire shot in. But with Penn State playing Michigan State, there could be one more game before, depending on if an upset happens, one more game before the playoff gets started. Yeah, I mean, in the scenario that we beat the Wolverines, we're sitting at 11-1. and we have wins over committee committee ranked of Nebraska, Oklahoma, Wisconsin on the road. Oklahoma's obviously on the road. And then at home against Michigan, that's four top ten wins. Resume-wise, I don't believe it's disputable with resume. We have the best resume, given us six teams. So I feel if we win, we're in. But we're going to see the committee has you know, made an emphasis on conference championships. We were on the, the right end of that in 2014, sneaking in over TCU and Baylor, but, but the Big 12 shot themselves in the foot that year by not declaring one of those teams the champion. So we're going to see what else happens. Things have to happen, but I look at it this way. If we win, one of two things happen. We're in the top four or we're in the Rose Bowl, and I can't complain about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, last year was funny because you bring up the Rose Bowl. I would have liked to see them in the Rose Bowl, but I did like to see them beat Notre Dame the way they did. It was an interesting one, and I agree with you. I think the resume speaks for itself. Four top 10, top 15 wins probably when, when the final rankings are going to come out, and a loss to a top 10 team, probably the yep. best loss anyone can, can put up there when you get to the upper echelon. So I'd agree with you they should be in. But, hey, you got to throw that out the window this week. It's time for the game, and everything else just gets put on the back burner. All right, now we're going to actually preview the game at hand Saturday noon in Columbus. 9 a.m. out here on the West Coast. So it'll be an early and a long day for us. But if we look at this Ohio State offense, let's start there, John. When it's on, can be electric. JT Barrett is one of the best playmakers in the country. Last week, they were stuck in neutral at times. What can they do to have success against the Michigan defense that has some star-studded talent is going to be ready to play? Talk about last week when the offense, I don't know what Mark D'Antonio does against Ohio State. I don't see it, but I don't understand why Urban Meyer forgets his playbook when he plays Michigan State. But going back to the game that matters this week, it's, it's line of scrimmage. Our offensive line, if you think they're good, you'd be lying to yourself. I don't think they're a bad offensive line, but they're young. If we can't control the line of scrimmage, you know we're not going to win this game. It's not going to give Curtis Samuel, it's not going to give Mike Weber and JT any room to run. That's one of the biggest battles on offense that we have to, have to prove first. The weather right now is going to play a factor. After last week, both teams, you know, Michigan State and uh, Michigan, both played in, in awful weather. You know, so this week I actually looked at the weather forecast, and it's like mid-40s and cloudy, you know, not really a chance to rain. Obviously, it's Ohio, and that could change within the next, whatever, you know, 72 hours. But as long as it stays like that, I at least feel confident that JT will be able to open up the arm and throw. But we'll, we'll see. But it starts with a line of scrimmage. Yeah, and it also starts to, John, you've seen this team enough to know that 
when they're at their absolute best, they're grinding out these long drives. They're controlling the line of scrimmage, as you said. They're dictating pace and owning time of possession. That's going to be huge, and I'm really interested to see how this first quarter plays out because if Ohio State can set the tone like they did last year in Ann Arbor, it could pose terrible problems for the Wolverines. But you asked me again before about the confidence level. While I'm very, while I'm confident, I wouldn't say very confident, the one thing that worries me, the one guy that's going to keep me up over the next couple weeks is Jabril Peppers. You can say how much we dislike the Michigan program, but this guy's a good football player. How do you think Ohio State's going to go about trying to neutralize his, his effectiveness? Uh, I'm not buying into the hype. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, he's electric, he's quick, he's fast. They, they use him all, all around. Uh, he's a pocket knife, but I'm not buying into a, a cornerback that can play DB, that can play linebacker, that can play safety, that let, let him line up in the, as, a, as a linebacker, and I want to see if he can stop, you know, Mike Weber coming right at him. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not buying it. But if, if you have to move your best, most electric player all over the field, that means you don't have very many electric players around you. And Ohio State doesn't have to do that because we have the athletes around. Okay. Um, so, I, so I'm not buying into Peppers. Well, and, and I'll say I, I'm speaking strictly on a college level. You sure. highlighted a lot of the issues why I'm, uh, it remains to be seen at the next level, what position he plays. Uh, yeah. But he's had a good year, and I do Absolutely. think, and I do think that him being moved around is going to be key because I think Meyer will know where he is and might sure. try to avoid him at times, try to find mismatches, and, and try to get him in the areas where he's not all around successful. But absolutely, I'm, I'm looking at JT Barrett. Two years ago, he was a freshman, got hurt in the game, but had been playing well up until that point. And while I'm a huge JT Barrett fan, as I'm sure you are, it's the only thing is the turnovers that worry me. And, and if he can clean that up, if he plays a clean game, my confidence will be through the roof. That's the one thing in the back of my mind where I'm still a little skeptical. Can he play a full, efficient game and hang on to the ball? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, hanging on to the ball, protecting it, not turning the ball over. I'm prepared the first, first quarter that the teams are going to feel each other out we made trade knockout blows in the first quarter with three or four huge, huge plays. I, it would not surprise me at all. And then when people settle down, adjustments get made, that's when the, the game really starts. They're going to be pumped up. Both sides are going to be pumped up. And hopefully, you know, everyone's playing with a level head and doesn't let emotions get, you know, ahead of themselves. But I'm definitely assuming that we're going to trade some blows in the first quarter. So talking with John Rydell on the Money Mitch Effect about the Ohio State-Michigan game coming up this week, let's flip to the other side of the field, the other part of this matchup, Ohio State's defense versus Michigan's offense. Now, John, looking at the Buckeye defense, I use the, I use the phrase timely. They haven't looked great at stretches during the season, but they can make plays when they need to. How would you assess where the Buckeyes are going into this game on defense? Honestly, it's great. I mean, for the longest time, and you know, I'm not a statistician or anything like that, but I'm looking at games, and yeah, they give up a good, a big play here, a big play there, but when it came down to it, throughout the season, inside the red zone, how good was that defense? That's I mean, great. there's been so many times I think about Oklahoma. There was like two or three times they're in the red zone, and they come out with not even a field goal or or a missed field goal, and then you know, going to the Wisconsin game, how many times did Wisconsin not score a touchdown? Like. It was, it was probably, it was either before or after the Wisconsin game. Ohio State didn't even give up a, a rushing touchdown. That's that's insane. <laughs> yeah. 
So while we got gashed on a couple huge plays last week from LJ Scott, collectively, like when we buckled down into the red zone, like look how good the defense has been. If if I give up a an 80 yard reception and make it into to the red zone, and then they only come up with three points, I'm gonna take that all day. So I have absolute confidence in the in the defense. I mean. Our secondary with Conley, Lattimore, and Webb, and then behind him with Malik Hooker. Yeah. I mean, holy crap. Even on the Wolverine side with uh, Lewis and um, Stribling. Yeah. I mean, the great thing that I can't wait to watch is the secondary. Our three cornerbacks are going to be playing man coverage. That's what Shiano has done as the defensive coordinator right now. And on the other side of the ball for, for the Wolverines, Lewis and Stribling are going to be lining up in man coverage. That is going to be absolutely amazing. Like, if you're an NFL scout right now, you're going to be chomping up the bit to watch these two teams because you're going to see what they can do even on a, a pro level. I feel like for the second year in a row, our, our secondary could get plucked again. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's, it's honestly it's disgusting. You know, to know that like Conley's probably gone, Lattimore and Hooker could be gone as well. Holy crap, you know. <laughs> could be, yeah, you're, you're right. It could be the second straight year that the NFL comes calling to the Buckeyes secondary. And I'm with you there. I think it's just been... A little inconsistency, a lack of focus at times. But when they're on and in the red zone, the Wisconsin game, which they won defensively in the red zone, yeah. I think it bodes well. McMillan is a beast. He, he's probably, in my opinion, is the most underrated player, a Raekwon McMillan at middle linebacker on this team. Yep. But I think, look, I think Ohio State is gearing up to have great success against Michigan's passing game. The game, to me, on that side of the ball will come down to how they do against the two-headed monster Michigan has at running back because you know they did struggle a little bit against L.J. Scott in some big plays uh, last week. If they can shut down the run, it will be a very long day for Harbaugh and his offense. Absolutely. You know, so we're, I'm, I'm excited, too. Now, the one last thing before we get into uh, a little bit of a prediction with this game is, and you know with any rivalry game, there will be that special teams factor. Yes. That's the one area where we can't really predict what's going to happen. So I'm going to watch all, all the kick returns, all the punt returns with uh, some added confidence. Because you know it could swing. It could swing the game one way or the other. Absolutely. I mean, Cameron Johnson for us, I mean, he does his job. A couple punts inside the 10 that stop instead of letting them come out to the 20. I mean, that's huge for us to flip field position. You know, and then on the other side of the ball, punt returns. I'm hoping that there's a bunch of them because that means we, we held them and we're going to get field position. We've done a great job of stopping the other team and getting field position when we're starting on, like, our 40-yard our line. That, that's great field position for the offense to have a short field like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's going to play a factor, special teams and field positions. So this is – I'm excited as, I'm, as, as the understatement of the year. All right, John, let's talk about predictions. How do you see this game going? I guess as unbiasedly as you can, if possible, uh, how do you see this game coming? I do agree with Vegas it's going to be a close game. I do agree that Ohio State's going to win. I'm looking 24-30, something like that. I think both teams are, you know, it could be even low scoring if the weather comes into a factor like that, but I just don't see the the offensive firepower being able to overwhelm either defense. Right. I'm, I'm with you on that. I like Buckeyes 24-17. I don't know that Michigan's going to be able. If Ohio State is playing well in defense, I think they ride that ticket. I think if Meyer gets a lead, I think he, he rides his defense to this game. I yeah. like the Buckeyes to go. I think the first quarter is interesting. Can we a one long, one long drive, a grinded-out type drive, 
a lot of Barrett, a lot of Samuel, a lot of Weber. I think that is just what the doctor ordered. But, hey, you know it's a rivalry game. You know anything can happen. A win here, and we're sitting pretty going forward into the playoff committee room next week. Yeah, I agree. Hey, thanks, John, for coming on the show. And uh, I'll be with you in spirit during this game, sweating it out, as I'm sure you will be. Absolutely. Big thanks to John Rydell for coming on the show and breaking down the Ohio State-Michigan game. This year's edition should be one of the best in the rivalry. It starts tomorrow, but I'm ready today. I want it, I want it now. It's gonna be a tough way in another day. Big thanks to John for breaking it all down for us. And also special thanks for Tim Adams for coming on the show, providing the Money Mitch Effect beats, and giving us a lengthy conversation on rap music, sports, and other topics. That was some great content as well. The Money Mitch Effect streams on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Find it there by just searching Money Mitch Effect. Follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. That's MoneyMitchM21. And thanks again for a great week of shows. We're now 30 episodes in. I couldn't have done it without all of you listening and your various devices. Got a big week again next week. Doesn't stop. More college football, NFL. We'll get back into some hockey and basketball. Should be a good time for sports. I am Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. I'll see you next time. And enjoy your holiday weekend.